Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 90 Feng Shui and Robin Laws. This week, we deep dive a game I'd never heard of until it showed up on the Arcane 50 Best poll a few weeks back. We're also going to look into the absolutely brilliant creator of that game. And I got some help this week. One of our listeners, Richard, who lives in Australia, offered to provide me with his insights into the game, as he's a longtime player and GM of Feng Shui. And when I say he provided insight, I am not kidding. He emailed me five pages of really good stuff. So, of course, I'm going to include it in our rundown today. I'll make sure as we go along to make sure you know what stuff is his and what stuff comes from my research because Richard deserves full credit for his contributions to this week's show. So, without further ado, let's crank up the tour bus and get to our first topic for today. The game Feng Shui was born from an idea Robin Laws had about creating a role-playing game based on Hong Kong action films. He approached Jose Garcia in 1993 with the idea, but Garcia's focus was on a setting of his own called Nexus the Infinite City, which Laws assisted in producing and was released in 1994. With that game released, Garcia was willing to look at Laws' new game and incorporated his Daedalus Games company into Daedalus Entertainment in order to do so. That being said, Garcia wanted a collectible card game released first, as collectible card games were, in the mid-90s, the new big thing. The card game in question, Shadow Fist, was designed by Laws and released in 1995. Shortly after that, Daedalus published Feng Shui in 1996. Feng Shui took advantage of the Nexus game system Garcia had already created, though it was somewhat modified to fit the game that Laws created. Daedalus went all in on Feng Shui, not only releasing the main game itself, but also a series of supplements. That being said, Daedalus Entertainment filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1997, which caused them to have to sell off a number of their products. Laws managed to get the rights to Feng Shui back, and his friend John Nephew, who owned Atlas Games, offered to continue to publish the game. That deal was finalized on March 22, 1999, and the Atlas version of Feng Shui was released to the market. Now, Richard did want me to note that Atlas Games made it very clear in the rules for Feng Shui that while the game might be based on Shadow Fist, Atlas Games never published the card game. And while certain materials are shared or similar between the two, they are indeed separate games. By 2015, Atlas Games was looking to update Feng Shui and release that new version to the market. They used Kickstarter to fund the update, which turned out to be a very successful endeavor. The second edition of Feng Shui hit the market late in 2015, and the irony of that is that the new version came out in time to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the original version. This second version, called Feng Shui 2, is available on the Atlas Games website, atlas-games.com. With the history of the game covered, I'd like to do a quick overview before we get deeper into the game itself. I've mentioned this before, but Feng Shui refers to one of the central themes of the game, which is the fact that those who control places that have Feng Shui control the world. This manifests by the people who control the Feng Shui having events be more favorable to them than just basic chance would normally dictate. Those who have the most powerful Feng Shui basically control everything. 
wars, political elections, natural disasters, pretty much everything. Now, some of the conflict in the game comes from the fact that there are multiple groups who want the powerful Feng Shui, and they're willing to fight for it. Which, if you think about it, is a version of a great many plots from Hong Kong action cinema. Now, there are a couple of things about the game that are a bit different than you'd expect. Feng Shui doesn't limit itself solely to the Hong Kong cinema style it's based on. Sure, it has martial arts and firearms, but it also has magic and very advanced technology, at least for the time. The physical settings for the game are also a bit different, as they're specifically designed to be vague. This allows the GM to work the scenarios as they see fit, as well as allowing the players to pull off the kind of stunts that would defy standard expectations. So I did the overview my way, but let's get Richard's take on it. After all, he's played it, so he would know better than I would. And just so there's no confusion, I'm giving you his overview word for word, so he gets full credit for the words that are about to come out of my mouth. The point Feng Shui makes over and over is that the game is trying to capture the spirit of all of those popcorn action movies that have graced our screens over the years. Think of all of those American action movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood, Sylvester Stallone, Chuck Norris, Bruce Willis, or Keanu Reeves, or the martial arts movies from Hong Kong and other East Asian nations with Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee, Jet Li, Donnie Yen, or Chow Yun-Fat. You know the ones where there's one guy who has something go wrong in their life and then goes on an adventure, quite often taking down entire armies of people in spectacular set pieces, and finally having a big showdown with a mob boss or other baddie. Dang, maybe I should just have let Richard write the whole show, right? Because that's, that's good shit. He also adds that everything about the game is over the top and crazy, with fun being the main commodity. So the big baddies are supposed to be way larger than life. You know, the guys with the maniacal laughs and the ridiculous evil schemes. There should also be swarms of goons, but of course the good guys should always win. And as we've both hinted at, lots of humor to go along with it. So let's dig deeper into Feng Shui, starting with the setting, since I just made a point about it being a bit different. At least physically, anyway. In multiple places in the Feng Shui world, there are portals to the netherworld. The Netherworld is a place that has a multitude of tunnels and caves that constantly twist and shift, which turns them into a, a labyrinth of sort. These tunnels and caves connect portals to different time periods of human history. These time periods are specific. 69, 1850, 1996, and 2056. In Feng Shui, 2056 is a dystopian future, and we've seen what those look like through various other games. These time periods are known as junctures, and you can travel to these worlds through the netherworld. Now, the netherworld itself is a very interesting place. It's got a ton of very, let's say, odd inhabitants, and these folks do not have a place in any of the junctures anymore. Feng Shui's 2nd edition makes a slight adjustment to the junctures, moving the ancient juncture from 69 to 690 AD, and changing 2056 from dystopian to post-apocalyptic. We've seen in dozens of different movies over the years the issue with having the ability to basically time travel. Somebody's going to want to change the past and or the future. If the ownership of a Feng Shui site has changed ownership, things like critical shifts can happen. First, it's based on a significant shift in key, so if that doesn't happen, all should be good. If it does happen, the shift of history can make big time changes to history. Example, it's entirely possible that a critical shift could result in the Nazis winning World War II and basically conquering the world with the rest of the Axis powers. 
Or if you're so inclined, the Roman Empire could have survived, thrived, and taken over more of the world than they did. Needless to say, the possibilities are endless. And people, including the characters, experience what's called a lateral reincarnation, which means they get a different name and occupation, along with a change in memories to match the new identity they got. Now, if there's not a change in ownership in a Feng Shui site, something else happens. It's called a superficial shift. Some details of history change, but nothing major like with a significant shift. People still get the identity and profession change, but the major difference is that whomever was in charge before the shift remains in charge. Of course, wherever you have a rule, you have an exception. People who've been to the netherworld do not have a lateral reincarnation. So they're acutely aware of all the changes that have occurred, which can cause their own issues in-game. So who are the folks trying to make the changes? <laughs> yeah, there are factions trying to cause a critical shift, and that's so they can remake the world however they so choose. They're engaged in what's known as the secret war, and it's called that because the average citizen just doesn't know anything about it. The secret war takes place across all four junctures, and the idea is to overtake as many feng shui sites as possible. Some of this comes from having associates within the home juncture, because after all, if you've actually got control of something, you're going to want to keep it. Of course, these associates have no clue about what's actually going on. Now, the agents they use in the netherworld are very aware of what's going on and are actively trying to make it happen. They're called inner walkers or secret warriors, and the characters in the game fall into this category. Let's take a look at the seven major factions of Feng Shui. Eaters of the Lotus. These are evil eunuch sorcerers from China, circa 69 AD. They've got a puppet emperor in place, and they rule China in this era. The goal, as you'd expect, is to spread their power throughout the time stream, and they use sorcery, demons, and political intrigue to make that happen. Guiding Hand. These are monks. Neo-Confucian monks, to be exact. They control 1850s China and seek to bring a world of peace and harmony, though they've got some pretty strict rules that they want to put into place as well. They are exceptionally anti-Western influence and do whatever they can to eliminate that influence from the country. That means the helpful stuff goes as well, so no science, technology, and other beneficial ideas from the West. Those are all rejected and removed. These monks are Kung Fu masters, and they have competition in their time from the Ascended. So let's talk about the Ascended. These characters are not exactly human. These are descendants of animals who used force of will to become human. And they reject any magic that could switch them back into their primitive forms, which you would expect. They have nominal control over both the 1850s and 1996, and they choose to use puppets to handle their dirty work. Police, armies, criminal organizations, and human secret warriors are their tools, and they're primarily used in any areas openly hostile to the Ascended. They have skills in Kung Fu, guns, and abilities based on their animal heritage. The architects of the flesh believe in equality, fairness, and good order. That being said, they enforce these ideals in a brutal manner with no compassion used. Their reasoning for building and growing their dominion through time is for the good of everyone. They rule 2056, and they're partial to using Arcana Wave devices, which they graft onto humans and demons they've captured. And they give zero shits about the consequences to whomever they graft them onto, despite the fact that very bad things happen to those who use them. The Jammers. 
Yeah, these guys are not only anarchists, but also pretty psychotic. They're mostly deserters from the architects of the flesh and are considered to be failed experiments conducted on apes and monkeys. Their goal is to wipe the world clean of any and all feng shui, and their methodology is to blow up as many feng shui sites as they kill. Collateral damage be damned. As we mentioned, explosives are their weapon of choice, though they also use guns, heavy weapons, and cyborg enhancements. Now, the four monarchs used to rule the world. It took a critical shift from the Ascended to end their reign. Each of the four rules a portion of the Netherworld, and they're working not only against the other factions, but against each other. They're each a very powerful sorcerer, and their followers are specialists in either sorcery or kung fu. The Dragons. This is the group the PCs will probably choose to be a part of. They're a very loose group, consisting of idealistic warriors working against the tyranny of all the other factions, which explains why the PCs will probably want to be a part of this group. One more note on the setting. Hong Kong happens to have a high concentration of both Feng Shui and Netherworld portals, and it's been the place where the most significant battles in the Secret War have taken place. Some writers and fans have been confused by this, but if you're basing your game on Hong Kong cinema, this makes complete sense. This is a good point to get back to Richard's notes, as he pointed out on more than one occasion in them that the GM is really spoiled with excellent adventure ideas. He also notes, however, that what he believes to be the most difficult part of being the GM for Feng Shui is the geographical location, especially for those who are not from Asia. That'd be a whole lot of us. He notes that while the books provide a plethora of setting materials, unless you've actually been there, it's difficult to really understand the locations the game takes place in. And he noted that if the only place you've seen them is in movies, the difficulty is the same. He added that while the rules do allow for running the games in different locations, the amount of work needed to actually move the setting there is quite large. Think of it like the Fallout game I'm building on the campaign build-along. I've said it in St. Louis, Missouri, in the Midwest of the United States. If you've been there before, you probably understand what I'm doing. But if you've never been there, it's hard to really understand the minute details of the city and setting. So let's move on to character creation. As we get into it, Richard noted to me that it's one of his favorite aspects of the game and further noted that it stands apart from a lot of other games, especially those that came out in the 1990s. After reading his notes and completing my research, I heartily agree with him. Also, I looked at what I'd originally written about character creation, and you know what? Richard has the experience, so let's go with his take on this. Instead of using dice or points to build your character from scratch, your players pick from one of 26 or, in 2nd edition, 35 archetypes. These archetypes have most of their stats generated for you, a background to understand the motivation behind these archetypes, a wealth level, and a specific juncture that they mostly reside in. That being said, every single archetype is customizable, with players often provided a set of bonus points across the attributes and skills, which they can use to bump up areas of their character that they feel will be more in tune to show how they want to play the character. It should be noted that the bonuses for each character type is different. For instance, the private investigator can add three to one primary attribute, two to a different primary attribute, and one to a third, while the scrappy kid can only get two to one primary attribute and one to another. However, if an archetype doesn't look like it's got a lot of customization, it's usually balanced out by having something unique that no other archetype has access to. 
For instance, the Scrappy Kid has a unique shtick that allows him to either distract an opponent or make it much harder for the bad guys to hit him. In 1st edition Fang Shui, characters also don't have the usual number of attributes. Instead, they have four primary attributes, body, chi, mind, and reflexes, and then each of these three has a bunch of secondary attributes. Body has move, strength, constitution, and toughness. Chi has fortune, kung fu, and magic. Mind has charisma, intelligence, perception, and will. And reflexes has agility, manual dexterity, and speed. In 2nd edition, they removed attributes entirely and replaced them with five stats. Attack, defense, toughness, chi, and speed. Also, instead of selecting shticks, each character archetype is limited to those shticks listed in their archetype, and this limitation continues throughout their advancement. Richard notes he's never played with 2nd edition, so he's not sure whether this is a good thing or not, so his commentary from this point forward will be in relation to 1st edition. But from his reading, they've taken quite a bit of flexibility from the players and locked them into a specific advancement path. While he believes it's probably easier to manage, he knows his players would probably hate it. And I gotta be honest, so would mine. He continues, they've changed a lot of the way the skills work between the two editions. In first edition, skills were based on a secondary attribute, and if you added bonuses to a skill, the action value would be the base secondary attribute plus the skill bonus. If you didn't have the skill, you just used your base secondary attribute with a minus three penalty to the action value. In second edition, they made skills standalone and not tied to any attribute, since there are none in this version of the game, and action value was set for that skill at character creation based on the archetype. As your character advances, you know, gains experience, the player is limited to either increasing the action value of an existing skill or selecting a new skill from a very narrow list within the archetype. But probably the silliest thing is what you need to do if you find yourself in a situation where you need to use a skill you don't have. In this instance, the book tells you to get another PC to do the skill you need. Richard says that's just plain dumb, but since he hasn't played the version, he could be completely wrong. No, Richard, it kind of makes sense to be too. I mean, I haven't played, but that sounds like some pretty dumb shit. Back to Richard's commentary. Finally, there are things called shticks, and they are broken into three categories. Gun shticks, foo shticks, and magic sticks. Gun shticks are what they sound like, the tricks that you can do with guns. Foo shticks are primarily martial arts powers, and they're broken up into a series of mystical paths, which as you gain more experience, you can build on your special moves within these paths. Magic sticks are to do with casting magic. Whew, I told you, Richard's done this once or twice. And I'm going to use this stuff completely one more time because I like his take on character advancement a hell of a lot better than I liked what I came up with. So here we go. This is another major change between the two editions. In the first edition, experience points are awarded at the end of each session. These points can be used to add new skills, increase skills, and to get new shticks. However, these experience points can't be used to increase attributes unless the character is attuned to a Feng Shui site, and then they can, but it's really expensive to do. Also, the number of points awarded is usually between 0 and 6 per session, depending on the level of fun and the ability to move the story along. I like the ability to award 0 points to a player, particularly if they are the asshole, and he noted that that was to use my words, being me Wayne Davis, not him, Richard. Yeah, I guess I use the word asshole a lot. He actually said it in the Australian style, which is arsehole, which our Irish, Scottish, and British fans would also know. 
Sorry, let's get back to Richard's commentary. In second edition, it's much harder to advance, as advancement is reliant solely on the number of Feng Shui sites that the characters are attuned to or have destroyed during the session. He's not a huge fan of this approach because it forces the GM to have the adventures almost always revolve around something happening at a Feng Shui site. On top of that, it's a group advancement, meaning either that the whole group gets an advancement or they're depending on one role that one particular player chosen by the GM makes. And he can see why they did that because it allows the whole group to advance at the same rate. However, tying it to a very specific criteria and then having one player make the role for the group doesn't seem very good. Like he said, he's never played second edition, so it might actually be okay. I think I'm going to give Richard a rest here and go with my stuff for task resolution in the game. First off, the rules for Feng Shui were designed to be exceptionally simple and easy to learn. Every writer has noted the hardest part of the game is combat, and that's because a combat scene can take at least a half an hour, if not more. Non-combat checks are typically single die roll resolutions, so those can be resolved in really a matter of seconds. So let's talk skill checks. For every skill a character has, they've got what's called an action value, Richard mentioned that earlier, tied to it. The action value states how good the character is at that particular skill. When skills come into play, it's a 2d6 roll. One die is the positive die and it's added to the action value. The other die is the negative die and it's subtracted from the sum. Once that's done, the total is called the action result and it's compared to the difficulty for the task. A result equal to or higher than the action result is a success, while a result below that is, you guessed it, a failure. Combat is the one part of the rules that is more complex, and I'm really not going to get into it for this show. Pick up a copy of the game to play for yourself and see why. Besides, if Richard and I told you everything, you wouldn't need to buy the game, and that's not what this show's about. One more thing I wanted to hit on with the rules is stunts. These are the actions that provide the kung fu action movie flair to the game. Basically, they work like this. If the player wants to try some outlandish stunt, like maybe the fire hose swing Bruce Willis did in the first Die Hard movie, YouTube that shit if you've never seen it. They can try it, provided the GM's willing to consider it. If they like the idea, the penalties applied to the character would be far less than, say, in a D&D game, which could see the penalties to a role be so severe that only a nat 20 could see success. Again, stunts give the players the opportunity what we might call that, quote, kung fu shit, end quote. With the history, setting, and rules of the game covered, let's cover a couple more things before we wrap this portion of the show. Over the years, 21 books in the Feng Shui line have been published, and 18 of those have been supplements. And in something that seems relevant in today's game environment, two of those supplements were released by outside sources, including one written under the Creative Commons license. We mentioned Paul Pettengale's comments on Feng Shui a few weeks ago, but Arcane Magazine did an actual review of the game. Andy Butcher handled it, and he gave it 9 out of 10 stars. His thoughts were to the point, quote, Simply put, Feng Shui is brilliant, end quote. Pyramid Magazine put Feng Shui on its list of the Millennium's best role-playing games that dropped in 1999. Scott Herring, Pyramid's editor, said, quote, Feng Shui found the way to do the over-the-top cinematic role-playing game without turning it into an exercise in dice rolling and power trips, end quote. With that, let's get into today's second topic. Robin D. Laws was born on October 14, 1964 in Aurelia, Ontario, Canada. He doesn't get much into his personal life in interviews or panels, so there's not a whole lot of information of substance out there to report on for this show. When it gets to his career, however, there's a whole lot of meat on that bone, so let's dive into it. 
One personal thing Robin's always been very open about is his longtime love of role-playing games. He's reported that he started playing as a teenager, and that love led him into the realm of game design, which he started doing in the early 1990s. The first game Robin got credit on was Over the Edge, which was released in 1992. Over the Edge was created by Jonathan Tweet, who'd been convinced by John Nephew, the owner of Atlas Games, to produce, as he'd been writing about it in Alarms and Excursions for some time. Tweet and Laws had multiple discussions about the game in the pages of All Arms and Excursions, and Laws had his contributions to the conversations included in the final product. Feng Shui was the next role-playing game Laws created, but since we just covered that in great detail, I'm not going to go any further into it here. And even though he was working on getting Feng Shui released, he didn't stop creating. He went the freelance route and worked on GURPS, Underground, Earth Dawn, and Vampire the Dark Ages. And in 1998, Greg Stafford, who we've mentioned a few times over the history of this podcast, approached Laws with the idea of creating a new game set in Stafford's world of Glorantha. The final result of this was Hero Wars, and it was the initial release for Accessories when it came out in 2000. Laws expanded on this book, and it was republished in 2003 as Hero Quest. Laws also wrote up the second edition of the game, which dropped in 2009. Now, as we all know by now, the third edition of D&D came out in 2000, and Laws ultimately produced several supplements for that. But it feels like his heart tends to be in experimental design, and his various projects tend to prove that out. In 2000, Pantheon and other role-playing games was released by Hogshead Publishing. Hogshead promoted the game as, quote, a new style, end quote, of role-playing game, and promoted it as heavily as they could at the time. At around the same time, Atlas Games charged Laws with writing the Ruin role-playing game, which was based on the wildly popular computer game of the same name. Laws himself stated in interviews around the release that, quote, the game would need to have a big point of difference to distinguish it from the many other fantasy games available, end quote. His solution was allow the player to swap roles with the GM. Law stated, quote, you can win, and when you're not the GM, it's boring because the GM can win, end quote. Ruin was released in 2001. The games just kept on coming for Robin Laws. On January 20th, 2000, Pelgrane Press released the announcement that Laws would take on the primary author position for a game based on the Dying Earth setting from Jack Vance. The finished product was titled The Dying Earth Role-Playing Game. We also mentioned in a previous episode that Laws designed the gumshoe system and did so to put the focus on players actually being able to find the clues they needed in an investigative type of game. Three of his books for this system were released between 2006 and 2007. Robin Laws also has credits on supplement on the Trail of Cthulhu line, which was originally designed by Ken Height. The Laws titles in the line included The Armitage Files and Dreamhounds of Paris. He's also written supplements for specific genres, if not necessarily specific systems. Mutant City Blues, released in 2009, and Ashen Stars, which came out in 2011, were investigative games for the superhero and space opera genres. Getting back into the games themselves, he designed Skullduggery, which was released in 2010. Skullduggery took the concept of the treatment of conflict from Dying Earth and placed it in multiple different contexts. He continued on this cross-pollination idea by combining Dying Earth and Gumshoe for the 2012 release of Gay and Reach. Laws did something else big in 2012. 
he launched a Kickstarter to release another Laws original game. Called Hillfolk, it was built on a new game system of his own design, the Drama System. Now, we're going to try to cover that in a future so, so I'm just going to leave that here for now. The campaign brought in $93,000 on a $3,000 goal. The game also won the 2014 Diana Jones Award. As we mentioned earlier, Laws wrote up the second edition of Feng Shui, which was also funded through a Kickstarter. In 2017, he returned to the world of Cthulhu, modifying the gumshoe system for one player and one GM for the title Cthulhu Confidential. The last game I was able to find was his 2020 release for Pelagrane Press, the Yellow King RPG, which was based on the works of Robert W. Chambers. Robin Laws is also a successful author of fiction novels. He released his first in 1996. Called Pierced Heart, he set it in the world of Over the Edge. It got an ebook release in 2014, so that should be available if you'd like to check it out. Over the years, he's released another eight novels, all of which have sold well. Most of them have been based on game systems like Pathfinder and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying. He's dabbled in computer games, comic books, and podcasts over the years, and he's constantly searching for new ways to stretch his creative muscles. He's also a regular at Gen Con Indie and the Toronto International Film Festival, so if you find yourself there, Stop by and tell him how much you appreciate his work over the years. He's also the recipient of frequent invitations to be a guest speaker at conventions. And while there's a lot of them he can't do, he makes it a point to do as many as he can every single year. As we've seen, Robin Laws has been a force in the role-playing game world for, God, more than 30 years at this point. He didn't show any signs of slowing down. And with that, we've come to the end of today's show. Before we wrap, I need to give major props to Richard in Australia again. Dude provided me with a ton of really good stuff. And like I said, I liked some of it so much, I just dropped it into the show as he wrote it. And not only does he get a hearty welcome into the Bad GM Productions family, I am going to make it a point to hook him up with some quality swag. Speaking of, if you've got a topic you'd like to see me cover on the show, hit me up and let me know. And if you're willing to share personal experience of the games, you might see your stuff make the show as well. All the ways you can hit us up are going to be in the wrap-up. Next week, we do something I normally would not do and hit up a current event issue. We are going to look at the OGL debate. We're going to hit up some history of OGLs, and I'm going to try in an impartial way to run through exactly what happened and what the hell went wrong. In the meanwhile, please check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, we're continuing to build our group's retribution scenario, though this one has a twist. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. On Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube and Tumblr, we're Bad GM Productions. Email, you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, it's the open game license controversy. And yes, I know a lot of us idiots have said a lot on it. And this idiot's going to do everything he can to try to wrap it up in a really neat package. So you're not going to want to miss that. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.